Let's open our Bibles together to Colossians. Colossians is one of the four prison epistles. Um, Gentiles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. When I was a brand new Christian in in 1984, I didn't know the Bible uh, from the adventures of Tom Sawyer. I mean, I didn't know where anything was. And... um, so I remember the couple that discipled me for a year and a half. They said, oh, it's simple, Paul. You know, Gentiles, excuse me, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Gentiles eat pork chops. <laughs> and that's just stuck with me my whole Christian life now, almost 40 years. And maybe that'll stick with you too. But um, here we are. On the chops part. <laughs> Colossians. Look at chapter two. Um, we'll get to chapter one, I promise. Okay. But I want to leap in uh, and give you a little just personal history here. Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." So in the early months of 1984, the Lord graciously broke into my life through the gospel. I was a 19-year-old man living in sin, religious on the outside, wicked on the inside. And God led me into a home Bible study in the gospel of John. And in the gospel of John, I came face to face with the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he did for me. And the Holy Spirit graciously caused me to be born again through the living word, which is what Peter tells us. He breathed new life in me through the gospel. And I was immediately brought into uh, a Bible study for the purpose of discipleship. You might be familiar with the title of it. It's called The Navigator's Two seven series, but it's based upon Colossians 2.7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. The whole point of it was not to simply lead people to Jesus and then leave them to fend for themselves, but to preach the gospel and see God bless that evangelistic work, and then to take the responsibility of nurturing that new believer in Christ, in the word of God, rooting them in Christ, building them up in Christ, so that they would live a life of spiritual fruitfulness. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do we receive the Lord Jesus? By faith. How do we walk in him? By faith. 
Well, two years later, I got married and moved to Kansas City to go to Bible college. And the Bible college that I went to had some rules. Most of them were really good. They made good sense. Uh, I had very gracious and godly leaders and teachers. But then we got involved in a rigid legalistic church where we were told we should only listen to one genre of music, which was approved by the pastor. Women should not wear pants. And you should definitely never enter a movie theater because if someone sees you, they might think you went to a naughty movie. And so that began this breeding of a fear of man in my heart that was already there my whole life, but it provoked it and stirred it to the point where I didn't see it at the time, but I began to be captive to the opinions of other people. Uh, It took many years to free me from that bondage, and believe me, it's not over. I still struggle. That bondage to what other people think can be very crippling in the Christian life. He freed me, the Holy Spirit, through increased study of his word from bondage to artificial standards of godliness that had to do with the externals, what really good Christians do and what really good Christians don't do. By giving into human tradition, verse 8 says, I was taken captive. And the roots of my faith became entangled with spiritual pride. What began just a few years years earlier as a newfound freedom in Jesus, as, as a brand new creature in Christ, became a mixture of grace and legalism. And as a result, the Christian life became increasingly more about outward appearance and spiritual performance and less about loving Christ. Thankfully, by the grace of God, in the patience and long-suffering of the Lord, the Spirit set me free from bondage to the traditions of men. And once again, he set me on this good path this good path of walking by faith and seeing that Christ must always be number one. Always. Maybe you can relate to parts of my story. Maybe you can't. But in the course of the Christian life, we are all faced with these kinds of temptations, temptations to get off track, to make the Christian life about something other than Christ and loving him and worshiping him and following him. We may think Christ is number one, but in fact, something else sometimes becomes more important to us. And we're not alone. For over 2,000 years, Christians have fought against the tendency to elevate some other belief or lifestyle conviction 
to be more important than the gospel itself. But Christ should be supreme. And that's why we have the book of Colossians in our Bible. Dr. Robert Grimacki, who died earlier this year, was the distinguished professor of Bible and Greek at Cedarville University for more than 40 years. He was, in my opinion, one of the best, most faithful Bible teachers in this generation. In 1981, Robert Grimacki published a Bible study commentary on the book of Colossians. Listen to these opening words. Two enemies of the evangelical church today are intellectualism and legalism. The former exalts the mind to the exclusion of the heart, whereas the latter stresses outward conformity rather than inward transformation. In most situations, these errors are found separately. However, they were joined in the heresy which affected the church at Colossae. Paul, the apostle, attacked these two errors through the exposition of true spiritual wisdom and of the believer's positional completeness in Christ. In other words, who we really are in Christ. That Christ is our identity. In studying Colossians, he says, therefore, you will see how a submissive life of faith and grace is the only spiritual experience which will glorify Christ. For this reason, as I continued to grow in the Lord and study the word myself, it was sometime in my later years in Bible college that Colossians 1.28 became my life verse. Look at it with me, Colossians 1.28. Him, Christ, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Those two verses have been an umbrella over my ministry for over 30 years. My desire, desperate desire for you is to proclaim Christ so that you will mature in Christ. That's my desire. My desire is that you would grow up in Christ that you would be rooted and built up in him. That involves teaching you. Sometimes that involves warning you about unbiblical philosophies that are creeping into the church that you need to guard against. It always involves teaching you with wisdom, and it always involves a great deal of toil Why? Because spiritual ministry to the souls of people is engaging in spiritual warfare. But Paul said he did this not in his own strength, not even with his own wisdom, but with the power that works within me, he says. What's that power? That's the Holy Spirit. He's unnamed there, but he'll be named 
in a few minutes when we look at the early part of the book. So let's look now at the beginning of the book of Colossians with that uh, framework in mind. Follow with me as I read verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it is also as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful ministry of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. As the apostle sets forth to Exalt the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the minds and the hearts of these believers. He calls attention to the gospel. So our big idea this morning is this. The gospel is the living and powerful word of truth from God about Christ, which bears fruits of grace. I mean develop that big idea a little bit by having you look at verse 5. So for starters, notice how Paul connects the gospel to truth. Verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth. What are the next two words? The gospel. The gospel is truth. Verse 6. You heard it. And understood the grace of God in what? Truth. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. It is the truth about Christ. You see him named four times in these eight verses. The gospel bears fruit in and of itself without any help from us. That's interesting. It is spread through our ministry, but it doesn't need us to accomplish its work. It is alive and powerful in and of itself because it is the truth of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So the gospel bears fruit in and of itself without any help from us. It spreads through our ministry, but it contains life within itself. We don't make it grow. We spread the gospel. But we have no power whatsoever to do anything with it once it is landing in the hearts of men and women and children. That is totally the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus teaches us this in Mark 4, the parable of the seed growing. Maybe this strikes your memory a little bit because we spent a couple years in the gospel of Mark recently. But Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. We have a part in the spreading of the gospel. We scatter the seed And God many times gives us also the blessing of being involved in the harvest. But we have nothing to do with what happens between the planting and the harvest in the hearts of people. You can manipulate people all you want to make a decision for Jesus, and they might just do it to get you off their back. That does not mean anything has changed inside of them. They, have made a, they may have made a decision for Jesus just as they made a decision to stop at Krispy Kreme on the way into church this morning, like I did. <laughs> Only God can change the heart. But he does it through the gospel. He does it through the word of truth. And and I'm pointing out also that the gospel is the truth about Christ because you need to understand that the gospel is for us, but it's not about us. It is about Jesus. It is about what he did as the God-man who went to the cross and was brutally murdered for our benefit and gloriously raised from the dead three days later. The gospel is for us, but it's not about us. It's about Christ. You can say it to yourself right now, it's not about me. That would be okay. The gospel isn't about you. The gospel isn't about me. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, the King of kings and glorious Prince of heaven who deserves our loyalty. He has earned the right to rule our hearts. When that gospel takes root in the soil of a heart that has been prepared by the Holy Spirit, it bears fruit. And this is all because of grace, not through the keeping of the law, but through grace. In these first eight verses, we see three fruits of the grace of the gospel. Number one, the fruits of the gospel include expressions of grace to all believers. Look at the first two verses. Expressions of grace to all believers. The apostle's greeting oozes with grace, not judgmentalism. 
toward all who are in Christ. In other words, it recognizes that when you are in a relationship with a fellow Christian, that relationship is supposed to be based upon grace, not whether or not they hold the same exact convictions and applications of the Bible that you hold. They don't have to dress just like you. They don't have to listen to the exact same music that you listen to. They don't have to vote the same way that you vote. They don't have to run their life the same way you run your life. They don't have to educate their children the exact same way that you educate your children. And the list goes on and on and on. Why? Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come to God the same way. And so there is this understanding that among fellow believers, there is a level of acceptance in love that transcends anything the world has ever seen. I didn't experience this until I began traveling and we first moved to Kansas City and we met people who knew Christ and instantly there was a relationship. When I would travel to Ukraine to teach or Russia, instantly I had a bond with people I had never met before. That's what it means to be equal before God in grace. The grace of God's acceptance in Christ. Paul calls himself an apostle here, verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He was called by the will of God, it says. So he was an appointed spokesperson for God in the early church. He had apostolic authority that no one today has. Notice he is called an apostle. God called Paul to be an apostle. Paul didn't call himself to be an apostle. He was called by the will of God. And in fact, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells us that he was set apart for gospel ministry by God before he was born. Before I was born, he says, I was set apart by God for this ministry of the gospel. Let that sink in for a few minutes. That might... Rattle your cage a little bit if you believe that you have supreme control of your destiny. God called Paul to be an apostle while he was still in his mother's womb. That's amazing. The whole point being is that Paul didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I think I'll be an apostle. And he writes to this <clears throat> church, a church that he has not yet met, uh, according to chapter 2 and verse 1, but a church that he knows about because it was established by two men who were saved under his ministry. We'll get to those two men later. But Timothy is with him 
as he's writing this letter, Timothy is with him. Timothy, our brother. Timothy's one of the saints and faithful brothers that he refers to in verse 2. So Paul was, excuse me, Timothy was one of Paul's disciples who became a faithful colleague in ministry with him. Timothy had a faithful mother and grandmother who planted gospel seeds in his heart and mind. And over time, the Spirit of God did a work inside of Timothy and brought about the harvest. The harvest came when Timothy heard the preaching of Paul. And he was saved. Timothy then joined Paul on his second missionary journey. And Timothy served the apostle in many different ways. He was sent to Corinth to deal with internal conflicts there. Um, He faithfully helped to care for Paul's needs on some of his travels. So much so that in 1 Timothy 1-2, Paul calls Timothy, my true child in the faith. There was a like-mindedness here between Paul and Timothy. Because it was all sent, they were both centered on Christ. It's written by Paul. <clears throat> Timothy is with him. Written to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. <clears throat> Excuse me, I neglected to take my allergy medicine this morning. To the saints <clears throat> and faithful brothers in Christ. At Colossae. Well, what is a saint? A saint is a holy one, is a set-apart one. Uh, The New Testament uses the word saint to refer to all believers. Comes from the root word hagias, for holy. We have been set apart by God, for God, to God. God has done that through the gospel. And he includes faithful brothers, Faithful men in the church. Now, the letter certainly was written for the benefit of the whole church, brothers and sisters in Christ, but it was delivered first to the faithful men who would be the first to publicly read it to that congregation. And these saints and faithful brothers are in Christ. What does that mean? It means that through faith in Jesus, they have been united to Christ. And God now looks at them through Christ, through the accomplishments of Jesus. And they are now recipients of all of the blessings that belong to those who love Christ. Grace to you and peace, he says. The order of those two is important. You will never have peace from God if you have not experienced the grace of God. You must experience the grace of God in salvation, in conversion, to then be made to be at peace with God and then to be able to experience the peace of God. These saints and faithful brothers in Christ are at Colossae, a city about 80 miles east of Ephesus. 
And so while Paul was preaching the gospel in Ephesus, two men in particular from Colossae got saved. And when they went home to Colossae, guess what they took with them? The gospel, the word of truth, and a church was born. An expression of grace to all believers. Notice he says, from God, our Father. Paul includes himself in with all of the other believers. There's a second fruit of gospel grace, and that is the experience of genuine conversion. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Paul says in verse 4, we give thanks to God for you. We always thank God for you when we pray for you. So he's not saying we always, nonstop, 24-7, every day, we're doing nothing but giving thanks to God for you because obviously they were eating and sleeping and traveling and preaching the gospel. But what it does mean is every time they prayed for this body of believers, their heart overflowed with thanksgiving. We thank God for you when we pray for you. Robert Gramacki says, Paul's first response whenever these believers came to his mind was not to scold them nor to be disappointed in them, but to be thankful for them. That's a beautiful lesson for us. He then goes on to talk about their faith and love and hope, which is a a common triad in the New Testament. Kent Hughes says these three fruits of gospel grace are sort of apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. None of these qualities can be manufactured by man. They all come from God. If you're old enough to know what shorthand is, uh, like I am, because my mom was an expert in shorthand, because she was a secretary at Alice Chalmers in Milwaukee, and even worked on the Manhattan Project without knowing she was until later, after the bomb was dropped. And she learned what the part Alice Chalmers played in that project. But she would, many evenings a week, even after she no longer worked outside the home, she was raising all six kids, she would in the evening sit at the uh, kitchenette table and... Um, She'd have the stenographer's notebook. It's got the spiral on the top. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Not the spiral on the side. And she would just practice her shorthand. Because she said she never wanted to lose that skill. And I'd look at this and I'd say, Mom, that looks like what I did when I was two. I mean, all it is is just scribbles. If you've ever seen shorthand, you're like, what does that say? And she'd read it to me. It was just a different language, a different written language. It was a way to put big thoughts into small spaces. And that's, that's what Kent Hughes is saying here. These three fruits, faith, love, and hope, are sort of apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. In other words, if a person is genuinely converted to Jesus Christ at the level of the heart, they're not just a professing believer, 
but they actually do possess Christ, then what you will see in them is a growing faith, a growing love, and a growing hope. Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's so important because we hear the message of the world today is you just got to have faith. And anytime I hear that, I just scream inside of myself, yeah, but faith in what? Faith in whom? Because biblical faith has an object. And your faith and my faith is only as good as the object we place our faith in. It's only as big as the one whom we love and serve and we choose to trust. Faith in Christ. Then love. Love for all the saints. Christian love. If you were here for the year that we spent in 1 John, you know all about this. The argument of the book of 1 John is if you really do know God, then you will love fellow believers. If you don't know God and you're just a pretender, then you're going to be filled with angst and hatred in your heart toward other Christians who don't do things exactly the way that you do them. Forgetting that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and every one of us is so incredibly deeply sinful. None of us, not a one of us, deserves to be saved. But God in his grace has chosen to save us. And this is all because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, verse 5. Hope here is the is anticipation. It's, it's looking forward to something. Hope is what drives us in life, one author says, and is even more powerful than fear. I love that statement. I don't know if you struggle with fear at times like I do, but hope is the remedy for fear. Faith is the remedy for fear. Hope is what drives us on in life and is even more powerful than fear. John MacArthur says it this way, the Christian has a different perspective. He is willing to forsake the present glory, comfort, and satisfaction of this present world for the future glory that is his hope in Christ. In contrast to the buy now, pay later attitude prevalent in the world, the Christian is willing to pay now and receive it later. What makes Christians willing to make such sacrifices? Hope. Hope based on faith that the future holds something far better than the present. What is the thing (laughs) that the future holds far better than the present? It is the hope of heaven. That this world is not our home. We're just passing through when it's all said and done, our 70, 80, 90 years will be like a blink of an eye and nothing more. And this is because they heard the word of truth. The gospel. You have heard the word of truth. 
Sometimes Christians get preoccupied with outward acts of mercy to the point where they make them a part of the gospel. That is an error. The gospel is the soul-saving, life-transforming message of true freedom from eternal condemnation that is found only, this life is found only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his study of Colossians entitled Captivated by Christ, Richard Chin writes these words, the gospel creates a life of love. Listen to this. This is so important. The gospel creates a life of love, but the life of love itself is not the gospel. Did you hear that? The gospel creates a life of love, but the life of love itself is not the gospel. He goes on, don't get me wrong. The life of love is the necessary fruit of the gospel, but it is not the gospel. That's why the popular saying, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, is so misleading. As Ligon Duncan says, it's like saying, feed the hungry at all times, and if necessary, use food. There is no way to preach the gospel other than with words. Because the gospel is not about us and our good lives. The gospel is about Jesus. End of quote. When a sinner experiences genuine conversion to Christ, not a mere superficial decision for Christ, they begin to be transformed by the Spirit of God, and this will show itself in a person's attitude toward God and a person's attitude toward other believers. Faith in Christ produces love for other believers. Why? Because our future hope is already secured in heaven. There's a third fruit of gospel grace, and that is expansion of spirit-empowered preaching. Look at verse 6. Which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it, what's it? It goes back to verse 5, the gospel. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This gospel did not only come to them, but it came to the whole world. It came to every people group. It came to every ethnicity in the world. And it is bearing fruit, Paul says, and increasing You cannot stop the gospel. You cannot stop it. It is alive and powerful, and it will change hearts no matter how mankind tries to squelch it. You can throw an apostle in the prison, but the gospel will still sneak out between the bars. They heard it, They understood it, 
They knew it was a message of grace from God, and it came to them from Epaphras. Epaphras and Philemon. Philemon's mentioned at the end of the book. Those two men in Ephesus heard the preaching of Paul, saved, converted, went back to their hometown of Colossae. A new church was born. And all of this took place, look at, in the spirit. The closing verse of this opening section reminds us that any lasting ministry that takes place in our church or any gospel preaching church is accomplished by the spirit of God. just as Jesus promised in John 14 when he said to his disciples truly truly I say to you whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father what do you mean by that well he's he's about to tell them that he's going to leave soon but he's going to send the Holy Spirit in his place. How is it that the works that we as believers would perform would be greater? (laughs) How could it be that the works of Cornerstone Community Church in Mayfield Heights and surrounding area would be greater? Spirit of God. Only the Holy Spirit. He is the power behind all of our ministry. Father, thank you for encouraging our hearts this morning to focus, to zero in on Jesus, to lock in on him, lock in our focus on Christ and being rooted and built up in him, not getting distracted, not getting deceived and put into a prison of legalism or worldly philosophy, but continuing to enjoy the freedom we have in Christ while we walk in the same way that we came to Jesus, which was by faith. Teach us, Lord, how to do this. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.